getting nosy for the sake of entertainment. Here's another episode of Steve Nagel Minds Your Business, a rock102.com exclusive. Well, hey there, kids. Welcome back to another episode of Nagel Mind Your Business, an exclusive podcast here at rock102.com. We've talked uh, so far to a comedian. We've talked to a business owner and other members of the community. But uh, today, this week, we talked to Rock 102's biggest fan. Well, at least that's how I see him anyway. His name is Steve Hawk. He's a guy from where he's been a huge fan of the morning show for many, many years. We've uh, corresponded for many, many years. And I finally got to meet him about four years ago and then just recently went over to his house and and talked with him again to tell his story about how he became a quadriplegic. Not something that anybody wants to imagine themselves being or being in a situation where they put them in a, in a place like that. But Steve is uh, resilient and he's very inspirational. And his his story for this week on Nagel Mind Your Business, an exclusive podcast here at rock102.com, episode seven. All right. Welcome to another episode of Nagel Mind Your Business. We are here in lovely Ware, Massachusetts. Where? And we're sitting here with our uh, our good buddy, Steve Hawk, who is, uh, let me give you a little background on Steve. Steve has been a big fan of the show since as long as I can remember, probably even before uh, I started working there. He was messaging me for the longest time, and then about three years ago, I came over here. Was it three or four years ago? It was about four years ago. Yeah. Four years ago, I, uh, I finally came out and met Steve, and the only reason why I hadn't met Steve uh, before that is because he is uh, a quadriplegic who which a quadriplegic in the town of where can your life get any worse it actually got even better steve it got better it got better moving to where <laughs> this is where all the action happens up here that's right so uh steve i wanted to sit down with you and uh, cuz I, I i think you're very resilient i i i label you as as resilient because i i i find it fascinating that somebody who was given the situation that you were that you push through and and you have this like wonderful outlook on life which i don't know if a lot of people have but let's talk about how you got into the situation that you're in now well what happened was on may 8 2002 at the age of 18 i was in a serious car accident and from the car accident I was left a quadriplegic, pretty much paralyzed from the chest down. So that uh, means that obviously you can only, you have some upper movement of your upper body, right? Like a little bit, like a below your neck? Like my shoulders, my chest, you know, some movement, but not total movement. Okay. All right, so Steve, tell me about the night that you, you're a, you're a hometown kid here from, you're from, for, you're from uh, Gilbertville, right? The, the the lovely village of Gilbertville. Gilbertville, which is like near Hardwick and stuff like that, right? Right, right next to where? Right next to where? And uh, you had uh, you had you had moved to Palmer, right? Is am I getting that right? You are. I moved there for about two and a half years to live with my father to go to the famous Palmer High School. Love Palmer High School. That is uh, one of the places that uh, is on my bucket list to visit one day. <laughs> I can show you the ropes if you want. Oh, yeah, I bet you're good at the ropes, right? Do you climb the ropes now in gym class? Well, they have an elevator there. Oh, 
you can get up and down that way. So you, you're going to Palmer High School, but uh, from what I remember you telling me, you weren't really happy with, with the high school. Then you wanted to get a job. You wanted to go out and get work, right? Right. I wanted to get a job, and sitting in school, being 17, I wanted to get a job and work five days a week, and school isn't for everyone. Especially people from Palmer. School is definitely not for everyone. Well, people in Palmer want to work in the young. Well, at least this one does. All right. So you uh, and you, and you told me you did a lot of like farm jobs, you know, stuff. You, you're working around the area uh, for cash, right? You can't work cash. Right? Yeah, when I was young, I'd go around do landscaping in the summer and shovel driveways and sidewalks in the winter. You know, make some extra money, you know, under the table. But I wanted to work on the table and start my career out. So. All right, so then you you eventually find a place that you can work at uh, full-time with benefits, and uh, where is that? That's American Dry Ice Corporation in Palmer. American Dry Ice Corporation in Palmer. So now you're you're 18 years old. You, you get this job at the dry ice factory, and how, how much are you pulling in? About eight eight fifty an hour. Which back in that time, 20 years ago, was pretty good, right? It was pretty good, and... Being a high school dropout, you don't think that you can get a job on the books, but luckily enough, I knew the, the supervisor that worked there, and I had to wait until I was legally 18 to work on the machines, and once I turned 18, I was on the books and moving on move, moving on up in the world. All right, so you're, you're, you're there, you're making dry ice, and uh, there's not a lot of people that work there, though, right? Four people. Four people, and you're one of the four people. Now, they had a guy working there that was above you, right? He, he was the second shift supervisor. Okay. And then so this second shift supervisor, he's not very good at his job. He wasn't good at his job and took it out on me. He took it out on you. But this, but I'm talking about the guy you took the job over for. You, you, there was a guy you took, a, you took over a job because he wasn't very good at his job at all. Well, the problem was he was drinking on the job. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of like the standard in Palmer that you drink on the job when you get one of these things? Most of the people. This guy who's uh, drinking on the job, he gets let go or he leaves the place, and then uh, that gives you an opportunity to move up. He was told to leave, and I was given the opportunity and start doing the the same job but working third shift. What possibly could go wrong? All right, so you're 18 years old. You're make, did you make any more money when you got promoted? $2 more an hour. All right, so you're making ten fifty an hour, which is pretty damn good for 2002. Really good. And you realize quickly, though, that uh, this might not be the best job for you. The first night I was handed the keys to the whole corporation, the whole company, to work all by myself. And you're by yourself, and you've you've now you've had you've had uh, disputes with the the nighttime or the second shift supervisor, right? Is that what? It, you know, you, right. I I had a few disputes about the amount of work on third shift compared to first shift. It was too much for one person, but being the young one with no seniority, who was I to speak up to the company? Right, because you're the, you're the low guy on the totem pole, so you can't really uh, talk back, if you will. But this guy's giving you crap pretty much every day when you go in there, right? Every night I went to work, 
arguing about something or when something wasn't getting done, who do you think was blamed? Because I had no say. So May 8th, 2002, you go to work. What do you walk into? I walked into absolute hell. Absolute hell. There's chaos everywhere. Machines are running. There's backups. There's all kinds of stuff going on, and you're getting yelled at by this second shift supervisor. Getting yelled at, on average, making about 40,000 pounds of dry ice a night. Imagine that, 40,000 pounds of ice. And went into work, and I got told what to do, and we got into a verbal argument that led almost to a fist fight. Almost a fist fight with it. And you're 18 years old. This guy's probably in his 40s, right? Mid-40s and about 500 pounds. Oh, he's bad, bad Leroy Brown. Oh, yeah. All right. Is it, do they, all the downtown ladies call him treetop lover and all the men just call him sir? I plead the fifth. All right. Well, there you go. So you're getting in an argument with this guy. This guy actually pins you up against the wall, right? Yeah, what happened was I was over by the bagging machine to bag the dry ice and... I was, you know, bitching and complaining about the job or what to do, and I couldn't keep up with the orders and dealing with all the truck drivers. And finally, I had enough and started swearing at him. So he comes over to me and puts his weight into me and pins me up against the locker. and starts screaming at me, who the hell are you? What the hell do you think you're doing? Do your goddamn job. And he's about six feet. 500 pounds and wouldn't get off me. So he's he's pinning you down, and you continue to work there, though. You continue to work for the rest of the night. He leaves, right? Well, I forced him to leave because I actually felt threatened for my life, and I'm not ashamed to say it, but I pulled my knife on him to get off me. Now, now what kind of knife do you, does an 18-year-old kid from Palmer have on him? A 7-inch buck knife. Seven-inch buck knife. That sounds like standard for any 18-year-old who lives in Palmer. Well, when you go hunting like I do, and you got a skinned deer, every boy or young man carries a buck knife on him from Palmer. Skinning deer or skinning supervisors? That's the two things that buck knife is good for in Palmer, isn't it? It's more than one way to skin a cat, right? More than one way to skin a supervisor, too. You got that right, but I didn't. All right, so you tell this jerk to get out of here. You gotta, You got to do your job, right? Yeah, you saw me and backed off of me, and I did my job for about two more hours after that. Imagine that. Two hours, and you're getting pissed off the entire time you're there. You're just, there's chaos everywhere. There's machines going, there's dry ice being filled. Well, there's five dry ice machines going, dry ice falling everywhere. Truck drivers yelling at me for not filling up their trucks, and I just had enough. And what did you do then? I snapped. And what does snapped mean? I don't know if you ever heard someone absolutely snapping, but it really is something true. Something overcame me psychologically, and I threw everything down and snapped and said, F*** the world. Pardon my friends. But I couldn't take it anymore. So what did you do? You, you did you just walk out the door? Did you did you do anything before you left? Well, the nice guy that was, I shut off all five machines because it wasn't the company's fault, just the supervisor. But shut off all the machines, 
got in my car, and that's when the nightmare started. So you're pissed off. You're 18 years old. You're going home, and you've just abandoned this place. But at least you shut the machines off so there wasn't, uh, you know, 800,000 pounds of dry ice in the morning when the guys walked in, right? Well, American Dry Ice, it's the biggest dry ice corporation in all of Northeast. And had I not done what I did, so many companies wouldn't have gotten their dry ice. The biggest dry ice provider in the Northeast is in Palmer, Massachusetts, and they only have four people working there. That's the owners for you. All right. Well, there you go. So I would be pretty pissed off, too. Somebody, uh, older guy, pinning me down, giving me shit, and you're just brewing this thing all night, and that's when you said, F- it, I'm shutting the machines off, and I'm going, I'm getting out of here. Damn straight. So, so what happens when you leave? So being 18 years old, 1 o'clock in the morning, pissed off the world. I got in my car, and I only lived about 8 miles away and wanted to get home as fast as I could. Why? Because I was 18 years old and dumb. And you're living in where at the time, so you're going from Palmer to where, right? Palmer to Gilbertsville. Gilbertsville. My apologies. I don't want to mix up the, uh, the hokey towns around here. That's okay, Mr. Nago. So you're 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 driving to Gilbertville and you're you're pissed off. So pissed off that I was going about sixty miles an hour in a twenty-five. Alright, and then what happens as you're continuing to speed out of control? Well, as I was coming through the lovely town of Ware, I looked to my right and I saw the state police officer sitting at the gas station. He sees me and gets in his car, puts his lights on and that's when I panicked. I said, oh, shit. stepped on the gas thinking the only thing I can do is get home as soon as I can. And that means speeding even faster down the street. Going even more faster than that. All right. So then now you got one car. How many car cop cars behind you? Three cruisers because when I went around the corner, there's two wear cruisers sitting right there waiting for me. Because they were already called ahead saying, this guy's coming through town, you better get on his ass, right? Oh, yeah, they're waiting for me. All right, so no spike strips or anything, they just decide to follow you. Well, being in the small town, there's only so many places I can go. It's not like being on the, on the turnpike or highway. All right, so you're coming down Route 32, scream-assing through the center of where? Never done that before. Yeah. <laughs> and then you take a right on to, the, to Route 9. You take you take the right in the center of town, and you you're you're still speeding away from these cops. I'm about four miles from home, trying to get home as fast as I could, thinking if I get home, the cops will know what I did, and everything would be fine. And then, what's the last thing you remember happening? The last thing I remember was going by the old Ware fire station, right as you're leaving town, and being overcome with something telling me that everything's going to be okay. So you get this overwhelming feeling that something's going to be okay, and then where do you remember next? The next thing I remember was waking up in a very, very bright room, and I don't know where it was or what happened. Are you like, what the hell is going on? I was because I could hear voices, people talking to my left, and... I couldn't move. 
Did anybody ever, uh, did they realize that you were now, like, awake? Once all the machines started going off. They realized that you're awake and now we can talk to him. They realized I was awake and next thing I know, my mother and the nurses come running into the room. Somebody at some point tells you what happened. Eventually, they tried to calm me down because I was trying to move, trying to talk to my mother, but nothing was happening, but... All the machines they had me on, all the alarms are going off. People are trying to tend to you, they're trying to make sure that you're okay, but can you talk? I can't verbal, I can't talk to anyone, I can't move a muscle. I tried to speak, but nothing is coming out. You must have been overwhelmed, with, with like f- frightened, I would imagine. Well, leading up to what I, the last thing I remembered was the three cruisers being behind me. And now being in this state, laying on my back in a bright room, not knowing what's going on, I didn't know if I was dead or alive. Eventually, somebody starts talking to you. Is that is that your mom or is that the nurse? My mother eventually, I recognized her and she started talking to me. So I know that something happened, but where was I and what happened? Now, did she know any of the details of the accident? Oh, she knew all right. So she knew everything that was going on. How many hours after this accident do you, is this now that you're waking up in the hospital? Probably about four days. Four days. So not like four hours. This is four days by the time you come out of this coma that you're in. I was heavily sedated, but they started to wean me off after my pulse ox got good enough to where oxygen was going to my blood. They're telling, your mom's telling you this stuff, and you can't talk back to her, so what, how are you communicating with her? Eventually, I realized I could blink my eyes, and that was my, that was the way I was able to communicate, was blinking one eye, blinking two eyes. Eventually, they picked up that I was communicating, but with, kind of like sign language with my eyes, which is pretty cool. It's cool, but... Not something you're used to at this particular moment in your life. It wasn't, but once I figured it out, it was nice I could, but it took hours to make out a sentence. Hours to make out a sentence because you're kind of doing the Morse code, if you will, with your eyes, right? Doing the Morse code with my eyes and going to the whole alphabet word after word after word at any point in this trying to relearn communication do do they does your mom tell you at the time that she's telling you about the does she tell you exactly what happened in the accident because all you remember is the fire station going hey everything's gonna be okay i had no clue what was going on but a few months after they advised my mother don't tell me what's going on because only bad things would happen what was the detail? How did the you see? So the last thing you see is this fire station going. Hey, everything's going to be all right. What happened after you passed that fire station? So I went around the corner, going over sixty miles an hour, and not realizing that there was a railroad underpass right after the corner. And come to find out, I was going so fast that I went to swerve to go through the underpass, and I hit the underpass head-on at 60 miles an hour. When does somebody tell you, like, this grim news, like, hey, uh, this ain't going to be working out for you? About six weeks later. And what, what, what did they say to you 
when they were telling you what your rest of your life was going to be like? Well, when I was communicating with my eyes, I asked them, why can't I move? Why can't I speak? And that's when they informed me about how serious my car accident was. So the, the nurse doctor came in and told me that I have a spinal cord injury. It's called a hangman's fracture. In my second vertebrate, I nearly severed off. And when they got my car accident, they told me my car caught in fire. Luckily, the police department and fire department are right down the street. So they had used the judge life to get me out of my car. It was a pretty elaborate operation in order to get you out of this vehicle and get you to the hospital. Do you know what hospital you were in at the time? Oh, well, Bay State Mary Lane was right down the street, and they got life flighted from there to UMass University. In Worcester, right? Right, thank God. And then how long are you in UMass for? Three months. Three months, and then where do they move you to after that? To Spalding and State Street in Springfield. That's like a that's like a like a rehab, right? Resisted living rehab. Yeah, it's like a rehab where you get physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and it's kind of like a nursing home also. And how much therapy did you actually get at this place? About four hours a day. That helps you in some way in order to regain like some of your movement some of your things like that, right? Well, the thing that pissed me off was my insurance only allowed for so many hours a day in a week when they wanted to do so much more, but what they what they could do was a lot that I didn't even think I could, could get back. What are you working on while you're in the rehab? I'm working on to get strength back in my shoulders and my arms because... With my spinal cord injury, you're pretty much told I wasn't going to get any movement back. So they started with my shoulders and my neck. And you still can't talk at this point, right? I could talk, but only with a trach in my throat. So you had a trach on, you know, and it was like a machine that you needed, to, like a, it was a, like a like a airway kind of forced thing to talk. That must have been hard to learn on too. It was. It took a few months, and I was on a ventilator for 19 months, which is a machine that breathes for you, which is pretty scary. So you have to have a ventilator that breathes for you while you talk? All the time. That's, that would be scary. See, this is, this is why I, I, I call you resilient, because to, to be in a situation like that, I'm just thinking about how I would react to that. I would probably be going nuts. I'd be like, oh, my God, I can't move anything. I'm trying to, like, do this. What is keeping you from going, I'm giving up on this versus, all right, uh, screw it. I'm just going to keep doing everything you're, you're asking me to do. From day one, the doctors told me I have zero odds of even surviving my car accident. And if I did... I'd never be able to breathe on my own, eat on my own, drink on my own, and be able to have any movement on my own. Eventually, you get to be able to, to talk again, like with using your own vocal cords. Yeah, about two months after my car accident, I built up my diaphragm where I could be off the ventilator for about 10 hours a day and breathe on my own and talk on my own. That was the first obstacle I jumped over 
by myself. Eventually, you're able to... How long after are you able to just completely talk on your own without the use of the ventilator or the trach? 19 months. 19 months. And so these are like milestones that you go through. You're like, you know what? <clears throat> I They told me I couldn't do this, and I did it. That's right. The first milestone was just survive my car accident, period. But then after I was able to breathe my own, that little voice in my head goes, they told you you couldn't. You did. What's next? All right. And then what is next? Then I was able to start shrug my shoulders after physical therapy. And then the, the light bulb went off and told me, you got a lot of work to do. Put in the work. Who knows what you get back. So then what was the, the next thing you did after that you can talk? I was able to feed myself. That, that's so that's huge because you can't, you know, so you have s some movement over your arm. How do you feed yourself? Uh, because you obviously have a, di like I, I'm just describing for the listener that your arms are, they're thin because that's what happens when you don't use them. Right. Well, when you're a quadriplegic like me, you lose a lot of your muscle mass because obviously I'm in bed for most of my life after my car accident. And once you're in bed, as long as I am, the natural process is you lose a lot of your muscle mass. And as your arms start to shrink a little bit too then, right? Everything does. Everything. Oh, no, don't say that. Oh, I'm Irish. It's okay, Steve. <laughs> so you're, you already had that problem. Me too. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. How, are you able to, how were you able to feed yourself? So what they do is they put splints on my, on my wrist and with long utensils, I'm able to feed myself. Oh, like a, like a big chopstick. Oh, yeah, giant, giant chopstick. Oh, I bet you the people at the Chinese buffet down the street didn't really care for you uh, rolling your ass in there, right? Well, after I choked and almost killed myself, I stopped feeding myself. Okay, so then you had to get somebody else to, to do that for you. And your mom has been the champion for you. My mother and my sister have been there day one. Mom and sister, they help you out. Every day, you you need help. Obviously, going places to, to to go things, but you get around on your own. I mean, you do the whole uh, mass central mass central rail trail uh, project, and but you, and you get around pr pretty well on your own. You obviously need help doing everyday things. What what do you need help with every day? Well, like when I get up in the morning, my mother will come in, stretch my arms to get all the cramps out, sit me up, and make a pot of coffee for me, but. Then I'm able to drink my coffee and listen to you guys on the radio. Oh, God. You're a paraplegic and aware, and you want to torture yourself more by listening to the morning show on Rock 102. Every day since 1996. Which, which is dedication, and I see that you're, dedica you're dedicated to uh, surviving traumatic experiences. Uh, listening to the morning show has been a huge traumatic experience for a lot of different people, uh, but you also have... have I, like I said, I like I'm amazed by you. I I, I think you're absolutely resilient, uh, and it's it's so cool to see. It's inspirational because I really I think about these things how I would feel about them. And I, obviously, I'm not in the situation. Maybe I would have a different outlook about it, but I would probably take it a completely different way than you would. Well, I was in a depression for a few years after my car accident, which was expected to, but then after all that, you're given two choices. 
you can either accept what happened to you and do something in life, which you don't know what you can, but, or you can reject it and be miserable, be angry, and be better for what happened to you. The depression part, I mean, that's, I mean, everybody has depression at some point in their life. I chose not to live like that anymore. Just because I'm paralyzed, I can't, doesn't mean I can't have a life. Yes, I have to do things differently. I can't obviously do everything like running the Boston Marathon, but there's other ways of doing stuff and getting stuff done. But you could drive the Boston Marathon. Do you want to go with me? Hey, you said this thing gets, what, 12 miles an hour? 12 miles an hour. You'd be done in two hours with the Boston Marathon. Sign me up, buddy. Takes most people three or four. Sign me up, buddy. All right, we'll get you going on that. But you, you, so you're able to move around. I just, I, again, I find it like inspirational that you uh, still have this outlook even after all the crap that you've been through, and you continue to go through things. You just had a surgery last week. Last Tuesday, I had a surgery to correct the kidney stone surgery. I had in April fourth. It was an eight millimeter kidney stone. And because of where it was, I had complications from that. So what kind of complications were you having from the, the first operation? I was bleeding a lot because what, they had to blast the stone because it's about the size of your thumb almost. They hit, they hit part of my urinary tract, and I was bleeding like crazy. All right, so then you have to go back. Obviously, it's, it was a successful surgery last week. Is they, did they do scans on you to say, hey, we, we fixed this problem now? Yeah, not so much. They had to go into the scope and make some repairs, but it's not going to stop me from still getting stuff done. This mass rail trail thing, this is, this is something that you do uh, with your time. This is like your job. You're the president of the mass rail trail. I am. The mass central rail trail starts in Florence, Mass, and it's a 104-mile-long trail that goes all the way to Boston. And it, but it's different towns, have different sections of these things. You're spearheading the where part, right? That's right. And, and working with other towns in order to connect these this, this trail? We're working with Beltstown, Palmer, going through where, going into Gilbertville, and then going to New Braintree, and all the way into Worcester County. And how hard has it been to kind of, you know, navigate these political uh, landscapes that you got with, you know, getting funding to help you out, you know, getting things uh, granted, you know, to to the association? The part where I work, it's a 2.2 mile long rail trail. It took 13 years to finally get it paved so everyone has access to it. And it's been going well. You've obviously have, uh, how much of it is paved now in town? 2.2 miles. Alright, 2.2 miles. And how many more we got to go? Got about three more miles to go. And how, it, it must be really expensive to get this paving done for this trail and the clearing and all that stuff. In the next 10 years, the state of Massachusetts is going to be spending $250 million to get the rail trail paved in to get it developed because some parts of the rail trail are still owned by people and other businesses, but the state of Mass with the outdoors is trying to buy the rail trails back so it can be developed. So it can be 
quite expensive. But you spearheading this and you uh, reaching out to your politicians and all this other stuff, you're getting money. You're getting grants and all this stuff to complete this trail. Quarter quarter of a billion dollars is quite a lot of money, but it doesn't go that far. The part I worked on, we got two grants for combined hundred thousand dollars. It's pretty darn good, I would say. Of course, you know the prices of everything go up, so then you know materials cost more. But you're you're. I see you online. You're on Facebook. You're always posting pictures on the trail. This is like a. This is must be kind of like a like a little bit of therapy for you every day. Well, it's therapy for me, and you know me, Steve. We see me, and you know I'm in my house probably 22 hours a day, but having the real trail is so therapeutic for me and other people because living here in the where is not many opportunities of getting outside and going somewhere and doing something in a wheelchair. What are you talking about? I saw somebody ODing on uh, meth down at the, the traffic light uh, last weekend. Were they in the wheelchair? I'm sure they will be soon. I can hook them up. Right. Yeah, but you got, a, you got an old one around sitting around? You got an old, like, you know, manual one we, you got around? Well, I got one that I wanted to get back for last year at the Mayflower Marathon when he hurt his knee, but... He didn't want one. Well, you know, because we, somebody, the, you remember that, you know, Bob the Bike Man, right? Yeah. He he hooked us up with something. Actually, this is more elaborate. He had one of those little uh, little mini scooters. Oh, the Rascals. Yeah, the Rascals. And uh, and get this, the fuse blew on it halfway across the parking lot. Weren't you the one driving it, Steve? Oh, I, I went driving it. I didn't want to walk my fat ass over to Uno's, uh, which was only, you know, maybe 30 yards away. I can hook you up with my other one. Ah, oh, sweet. We could have like we could have like a like a wheelchair race down the street. That'd be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. I I really want to thank you for the time to do this podcast. I, I know a lot of people know who you are. Obviously, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but a lot of people know you because you're now a fan of the show and you kind of are part of our show in a way. I feel like I'm part of the show, and I call in and. You guys pick up and talk to me, and you guys are always messaging me back, and I feel like part of the family at Rock 1 and 2. It's pretty cool. Well, you are part of the family, and you have a great sense of humor, and I just wanted to kind of ask you uh, these questions that uh, you said to ask you, right? Right. And, uh, and, I, and I'm like, let me just pull up my messenger here. Now, you said, uh, how long do you plan on being like this? Until I retire. Until you retire, you're going to be in a wheelchair. Uh, uh, you're on the Disability Awareness Committee, though. I did want to mention that. I am. I joined last year in the fall because what other better candidate am I for being on the Disability Awareness Committee? So you're on the Disability Awareness Committee, are you? I'm the president. Oh, you're the president of that, too. I get two badges. Hey, you got, hey you're, the pre- wait, you're going to be the president of where sometime soon. Mayor of where? Is there a mayor in this town? There will be. Is it or is it just a board of selectmen? Board of selectmen. Uh, you got to change that, man. This this town is booming. You got to be the mayor. You should be the mayor. You should be the honorary mayor for the rest of your life. That sounds good, especially with all the uh, the community work uh, that you're doing. I appreciate your humor. I appreciate you. I think uh, you're an inspiration to a lot of people out there, and. You know, as much as I paint this grim picture in my head of how I would feel if I was in your situation, I always know that 
people who have these experiences share their experiences with other people and you you're an inspiration for other people who are disabled and you're also an inspiration for people to show you that you know life is life is precious and and you don't want to you don't want to get rid of what you have just because you have something stopping you from being the full human being that you can be that's right and if i could just say one thing from the bottom of my heart that is true is listening to rock one or two as long as i do really truly helps me get me through my life and gets me through my days listen you quadriplegic kiss ass you're not getting a free t-shirt just for saying that i got you guys autograph even better Damn it, I forgot I gave that to you. Steve Hawk, thanks so much for being part of this today. It's uh, it's Nagel Mind Your Business. Do you want anything else to say to the people? Well, I want to thank you, Mr. Nagel, and for everyone going in life, going through struggles, never give up. All right, Steve Hawk on Nagel Mind Your Business, an exclusive podcast on rock102.com.